0: back to the Red Seat Podcast. Joining me today is Brian Joyner of BP, and today we have a special guest, Brian McPherson of the Providence Journal. Um, Brian and Brian, how are you guys doing today?
1: Doing well, Jake. How are you?
0: Uh, fantastic. Um, are you guys tuning into any tournament games?
1: You I know, should, I should be, but... Um- the problem with the condo we have at spring training is that I wasn't able to hook up the internet without unscrewing the TV. Like the cable, it both goes in the cable jack. So I chose internet over TV and thus don't have access to the tournament
2: right now. Ah, that is tough. How about you, Joyner? No, just Kung Fu Panda on repeat. Ah, the, the, the plights of fatherhood.
1: Wait, you're watching Pablo Sandoval on repeat?
2: <laughs> yeah. That is the... Uh hey i mean the the version of pablo sandoval that played today is in fact the one i've been watching in those movies or yesterday yesterday
1: that's true i haven't actually seen them yet my daughter's a little bit too young for us to get to that does he hit lots of home runs in the movies
2: i mean figuratively yes after you know there's a long period of personal growth which i think we're seeing
0: he is fairly nimble, though, in those films, so I think that that's a good representation of the, uh, of the panda that we're seeing right now. Um, but uh, we do have a lot of news. Um, Brian is actually joining us from uh, Red Sox spring training right now, so thank you for doing that. Um, I hear that you have a better housing situation um, than you had had in years past. Can you tell us about that a little bit, Brian?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, it, it started out rough. Um, I got here on February 12th, and there wasn't running water. So that was a challenge that got resolved a day later. There's always sort of something with some of these rentals. It's always, you know, you don't want to complain, obviously. I'm in Florida in February and March. Um, but it's always a little goofy. The the best one was a couple of years ago, um, when we were sharing a house with some of the guys from WEI. And about halfway through the spring, we discovered there was a man living in the garage that we hadn't known about. <laughs> um, I was doing my laundry. And I saw a guy's foot sticking out of this tarp that I thought had just been hanging up to kind of keep us away from the, the, the owner's stuff. Like I thought they were just keeping their stuff in the garage, but apparently the caretaker was sleeping in the garage too. So that was fun. Um, and we don't have that this year, so that means that it's definitely better.
0: Now, you're almost never there at the same time as Tim, right?
1: Yeah, to the point that – so on Monday, um, March 20th, Tim and I will switch – to the point that he's going to arrive in Fort Myers. He said around like 8 o'clock, and my flight out is around 8 o'clock. So we may actually literally not even be here at the same time.
0: And that's purposeful, though, because you hate Tim, right?
1: That's mostly the reason, yes. Okay. We did see each other. We didn't see each other last time we switched because Tim intentionally flew out from the East Coast. The Red Sox had three straight games over there. That was kind of rather than do a drive back here and fly out a different day, he just flew out from that side. We did see each other the first handoff. We actually were here one night overlapping the first handoff. But, yeah, it's funny because we both cover the team and because there's so many games all year that basically we, we alternate everything. We alternate road trips and, you know, we split up the home game. So, like, yeah, we talk to each other on our own podcast every week and we do a chat and all that. But actually, you know, last season I probably saw Tim before the playoffs. I probably saw Tim like five times all season.
0: Yeah, it's, it's so surprising to the rest of us because we listen to uh, the Super 2 podcast and it seems like you guys probably are seeing each other and chatting all the time from hearing your rapport and everything and then it's, it's kind of funny to know that you guys don't really run into each other all that much at all.
1: Well, that's how good of actors we are to be able to do that while despising each other.
0: Yeah, that's, that's kind of the same way that me and Joyner do it on this podcast as well because he is from Nantucket, which is just terrible.
2: Jake, I outwardly despise you. I'm not hiding anything.
1: <laughs> I like Nantucket. I've been there I guess just the once, but it was very nice.
2: Man, you just set him up for that perfectly. He said that because I am actually from Martha's Vineyard. So he's teasing me double now.
1: Oh, I see. I've also been mm. there, I think, just the once.
2: He really hates it when I tell him he's from
0: Nantucket instead of Martha's Vineyard.
1: What's the difference? There I mean, there I know difference. like I know they're different places, but is there like a reason one is offensive?
2: Because, uh, much like the Yankees and Red Sox, you are just like us, but you're over there.
1: Oh, okay. I see. That makes sense. I can buy that.
2: <laughs> All right.
0: So uh, let's let's get down to the down and dirty, because there are uh, a lot of things to talk about, and especially um, with today's game. Um, I want to lead with Pomerantz, and we were going to lead with something a little bit lighter today, but Pomerantz leaving with the... Uh, The triceps tightness in his left triceps was a little bit alarming. Um, I was watching the game, and it looked like he was, you know, basically serving up batting practice before that. His breaking ball wasn't particularly sharp. Um, Fastball command wasn't really there. Uh, And then he leaves the game. So um, can you fill us in as to what the situation is there?
1: So we don't really know the situation. Um, He's going to be evaluated Monday morning, and they'll know more then. I mean, I think – if he makes his next start, you can kind of say that he dodged a bullet with this. If he doesn't make his next start, odds are he won't be ready for opening day and it's a big problem. So in the next few days, we'll kind of know more. But for now, you know, there's certainly reason to be concerned. He had forearm stiffness at the end of last season. He had a stem cell injection to kind of get rid of some of that elbow discomfort that he had, and now he's got triceps discomfort or tightness or whatever you want to call it. And he says it's not related. He says it's in a different spot that's great it's all the same elbow and sometimes you know if one area is hurting and you compensate then you hurt another area you know it's it's the same elbow and you know clearly Pomerantz has had some health issues since before the Red Sox traded for him that was a whole controversy around that trade and the reason AJ Preller was suspended for a month so it's it's not at all what the Red Sox needed to hear this early like maybe he's fine maybe he was trying to attribute it to just kind of getting started ramping up in spring training which is all well and good but you know it's it's late March now. Like It's time to not ramp up in spring training. They don't have margin for error for him to to have to take a step back because if he doesn't make all of his starts, you know, you start to doubt that he'll have enough buildup to be ready to pitch in Detroit that first weekend of the season.
0: And then all of a sudden plan B, I guess now it would be plan C because Price is expected to start the season on the DL would be presumably Kyle Kendrick.
1: Yeah, Kyle Kendrick, Henry Owens and Brian Johnson aren't in Big League camp anymore um, because neither of them were effective. Both of them had things they needed to work on as opposed to, you know, trying to get outs in Big League games. So you don't want it, you, don't, you don't really want to turn to either of them in a Big League game right now. Um Rowan S. Elias is injured and won't pitch won't throw at all for a couple more weeks because of the um what was it the the rib cage muscle, I forget the exact word for it. Now that he strained right before I start the other day. So it's basically Kyle Kendrick is all of their pitching depth, and if they lose anybody else, I honestly do not know who would get that other start.
0: Yeah, Hector Velasquez looked pretty bad today, too. He gave up the four earned runs and the four hits. What's going on with him? He has had a little bit of an injury situation as well.
1: Well, so it's not as much of an injury situation as the fact that he didn't really have an offseason. He basically pitched 260 innings last year in Mexico, just kind of continuously straight through the winter, and then he came here and kept pitching. So, like, i mean it's a unique situation i don't know much about him but it certainly seems like he could have benefited from having an offseason at some point in there and maybe the red Sox mishandled him by having him throw right away like maybe he should have just taken spring training off and then started with the paw Sox making like start pitching three innings at a time um but yeah i, don't, I mean he's he's interesting but yeah he doesn't look good so far and they they don't really have the time to to experiment with him
0: yeah. That, it, it's all really scary. I can't tell you how frightened I am by this whole situation as a as a fan and a follower of the team. Um, there's just no no margin for error at this point. I mean, uh, give, give us some sense of, of just how concerned you are, because I'm sure you've seen many, many, many a thing like this over your time covering the team and following the Red Sox, but... Um, on a scale of 1 to 10, how alarmed should we be about this presumed fifth starter issue in Pomerantz's health at this point?
1: I'm in a 7 at this point because, you know, there's there's a scenario in which Price and Pomerantz both have severe elbow injuries and miss the bulk of if not all the season, right? Like it's not likely, but it's possible. And then they're really up a creek because you don't want Kyle Kendrick making 30 starts for you. Like that was not the way they drew this up at all. And, yeah. you know, you can you can discuss the buckles trade all you want. It didn't seem like there was going to be roster spots. Certainly wasn't budget space. And obviously, you know, a lot of Red Sox fans now are clamoring for buckles to come back, which is kind of hilarious because most of those Red Sox fans wanted him gone. <laughs> but Now, obviously, he'd look good because they're running out of pitching. And, you know, just the same old story that they haven't developed – upper minors depth starting pitching guys that they can plug in for a month if they need it like you need a Henry Owens to be able to make some of these starts and then go back to the minors like the nightmare now is that if Pomerance is out for a month and Kendrick makes these starts and then Pomerance comes back and they have no choice but to DFA Kendrick because they can't send him down to the minors and somebody claims him and then somebody else gets hurt two weeks later then you've got nothing and, you know, you hope that Johnson will kind of figure things out by then. He's probably your best hope for a number seven starter, a number six starter, whatever he would be right now. Mm-hmm. But, like, they just they haven't developed starting pitching in-house. And this goes back to Clay Buckles. Like, in the John Henry era, the most amazing stat I've seen recently is in the John Henry era, out of their the guys they've signed or drafted, they're homegrown starting pitchers. You know, number one in innings pitch is John Lester. Number two in innings pitch is Clay Buchholz. Number three is Felix Dubrot. Wow. Like, that's how far down it goes in terms of guys they've developed as starting pitchers. And now there's nobody. Like, you'd kill for Felix Dubrock right now as a, like, decent back-end starter, and they just don't have that. So that's that's why you have to be a little bit concerned.
0: Is there anyone out there on the market right now that you think is a possibility for them to sign, even though it's super late in the game?
1: I haven't looked. I think there are, right? I think there are some.
0: There's Fister still. Come
1: yeah, there's guys like that that I'm sure they would... If Pomerantz went on the shelf for a while, I'm sure they would bring somebody in because guys like that are—that's what they're waiting for—is a shot like this. And maybe that guy, if he's built up, gets the nod over Kendrick because that's what you promise him to get him to sign. Um, but I mean, if inherently, if you're signing a guy off the street on March 20th, you know you're not really in a good place.
0: Yeah, it's, it's certainly not the place that the Red Sox envisioned themselves in when they mortgaged more of the farm to go out and acquire Chris Sale. I think the thinking then and, and there when that happened was, wow, this is going to be a huge strength of the team, and now what it's looking like is this is going to be the biggest question mark on the team instead.
1: Yeah, that I would, I would agree with that, that it's, you know, certainly the front end of the rotation still should be pretty good. Eduardo Rodriguez has looked good all spring, but... But, yeah, you don't want to run out of starting pitching. That's the easiest way to completely undermine um, a team that should win the playoffs. And right now, it's there's plenty of reason for concern.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Joiner, you got anything to add with this particular situation?
2: Yeah. yeah, you know, I saw a lot of people today on Twitter saying, oh, I wish we could have Anderson Espinosa back. That doesn't make any sense to me. That seems um, convenient. Uh, but – I don't, I know that the, the Red Sox are running out of depth. I don't know really outside of Buckholtz leaving, which to be fair, he said he needed a fresh start. And I think it's clear he did. I just, um, I don't know. I think I'm just a little bit bothered by uh, not being able to remember like how people felt four months ago, but I'll ask Brian. Brian, do you think it's fair to think that the Red Sox should have uh, maybe taken Espinosa back?
1: The the reason to make that argument is that if the problem is they don't have enough starting pitching and Drew Pomerantz came over as damaged goods, um, this is the, the the sort of the granting all of the parts of that argument to see if it makes sense. Like if Drew Pomerantz comes over as damaged goods, which you can make the argument he did, then the problem he was supposed to address, which is a lack of, Starting pitching, he didn't really address, and thus you basically just gave Anderson Espinosa away for nothing. Now, Pomerantz, you know, he wasn't completely damaged goods. He made some important starts for the Red Sox down the stretch. That's the part of the revisionist history that I don't really buy because they needed someone to make those starts when Buckholz was terrible and Joe Kelly was out of the rotation, and then Stephen Wright got hurt. And for a while there, there was span of six starts or, or so where Pomerantz was pretty good. Then he wasn't as good in September. Um, they needed, it seemed like they needed him espinoza was a real steep price to pay you sort of wonder what they could have you know what the price would have been for like a jeremy Hellickson if he was available instead um but so that's that's the reason why you sort of want espinoza back but you know pomerantz was supposed to be a guy who was coming into his own and you know that you had to pay the cost for that and it was better to get pomerantz for three years than rich hill for just half a year last year because you know, I guess then you would have hung on to Clay Buckholes and who knows if Clay Buchholz would have been healthy now in a different situation in a parallel universe. It's, I think people are frustrated that you add it cost that much to get Drew Pomerantz, and he was just okay last year, and now it looks like he now it looks like he's damaged goods, and you know his elbow hurts, and it's just you never really you have no idea if you're going to get anything at all from him this year.
2: That's it's, that makes sense. Uh, just a follow up question. You mentioned Kelly. It, is, it, is there a chance that if they run out of pitchers that he would start again, or is he just in the bullpen for good now?
1: He's in the bullpen for good. Actually, it's more likely that he pitches the eighth inning on opening day than it, does, than it is that he's in the rotation. This may be transitioning topics too much, but Tyler Thornburg um, threw a bullpen today. He hasn't pitched in a game since March 1st. They were bringing him along very slowly. There still should be time for him to be ready to start the season, but John Farrell has said if Thornburg's not ready to start the season, probably Joe Kelly's his eighth inning guy. I mean, we saw what he he did out of the bullpen in September and October. You know, he's he's had a lot of years as a starter, and it really hasn't worked. And it seems like the bullpen is the place for him.
0: Well, I guess the good thing about that is that there is increasing confidence in his abilities back there. So, I mean, the, the thing that I think of first when I hear that, Thornburg's still kind of working into form here is that, you know, hopefully the Red Sox didn't make another catastrophic uh, reliever trade mistake Um, like some people argue they did with uh, Carson Smith last year. But, um, you know, if if you can get anything useful out of Joe Kelly in in a trade that looks pretty bad in retrospect still, that uh, trade for Alan Craig uh, that we we made a few years ago, I, I think that's still a positive thing.
1: Yeah, Kelly should be really good. I mean, it's just I think asking him to start at this point. I think he came to he came to spring training accepting that he was going to be a reliever. His stuff seems to work best. His body doesn't seem cut out for starting. Yeah, it seems like he's got a chance to be part of a really good bullpen as opposed to a a very shaky rotation and you know, if the rotation's not very good, like maybe that's what you do and you know, you can't manage a bullpen like some of the playoff managers did last year all season long. But certainly a bullpen with a lot of guys that John Farrell feels good about could help him. You know, you kind of patchwork it together if you end up having to start Kendrick every five days and he only gives you five and a third innings or four and two thirds or something. Like you can make it work with that bullpen, especially if you're hoping that someone like Chris Sale is going to go seven or eight every single time that you can really focus that bullpen on pitching behind the guys who need it.
0: Yeah, there seemed to be a, a good number of guys in that bullpen that, that seemed like they would be comfortable going more than just one inning.
1: Yeah, and and with some quality, too. I mean, one guy that's really stood out this spring is Heath Hembry, And for a while, Heath Hembry was just sort of that seventh guy, a back-and-forth guy to Pawtucket. This year he's out of options, so he can't be that. He was really bad against lefties last year, but what he and the Red Sox have discovered was that the instant he threw any ball to any lefty, he only threw fastballs, whether it was a 1-0 count or a 1-1 count or a 2-1 count or anything like that. Basically, as soon as he wasn't ahead in the count to a lefty, he only threw fastballs. So he's gained some confidence with his slider. He's also gained some understanding he's got to throw his slider, like he's got to throw it in 2-1 counts, you know, and try and either steal strikes or get a swing and miss or get a foul ball to get back in the count. And if he's less predictable, they're hopeful that he'll be able to pitch more effectively because he was really good against righties and he was just too predictable against lefties. And if he can emerge, I mean then you've got then you've got a pretty good looking rotation. I mean, Bullpen with, with Thornburg and Kelly and Barnes and a good Hembry and Ross from the left side all in front of Kimbrell. Like it's it's really encouraging looking bullpen.
0: Yeah, that that certainly looks to be one of the strengths of the team there. I, I have to ask, was that something that was pointed out to him by Carl Willis, or was that a banister thing?
1: I don't know. That was just something that Farrell's talked about. He talked about the attack plan to lefties. They didn't even announce it to us per Mm -hmm. se but it didn't take much work on brooks baseball to kind of look at look at his sequences and look at his pitch usage against lefties and realize like huh when the count was two and one against lefties he threw you know the 20 occasions that happened he threw i think literally 19 fastballs i think it was 19 and one um that that was the area of too much predictability that they were dealing with
0: yeah that's shocking that's a shocking number um So before we move on, I want to ask you one more question about Anderson Espinosa. So the whole thing where it seemed like the Red Sox got the option to do a, a trade back when that information came out, did we know much about that agreement there? Like, was there any sort of thing that said, like, hey, you know, we're good with the trade as it stands, and that's it, and, you know, our hands are kind of washed of that, and whatever happens, happens? Or was there any clause in there that is known that, um, you know, if his UCL does blow, that they get a chance to, you know, send him back? or Is there anything like that? Do we know anything about that trade uh, no, clause there's, at
1: all? No, because there's not really an agreement per se. Like, it's not like a contract like the John Lackey thing where they had a contract with different protections and all that. This was Rob Manfred and MLB. Basically, just after they discovered that the Padres hadn't been totally forthcoming with medicals, he went to the Red Sox, and I believe it was before the trade deadline, but I feel like there's some conflicting reports on this. Went to the Red Sox and said, um, you can undo it. And I think the Marlins and Padres did undo a trade. Yeah. Um, but that would that was it. Was He was just, if you feel like you were misled and you would not have done this trade if you knew that they were hiding something in the medicals, then you can undo it. And they said no. And then that was all. Like Manford said after the season, this was when he was at Fenway for the David Ortiz um, celebration. I mean, he said that like there's no way you can't because there's no objective value of players, you can't say, well, let's replace Anderson Espinosa with a lesser prospect because, you know, okay, fine, you can look at the rankings and see that some guys are better than others than others, but prospects are all relative and all subjective. So you can't say, Well, you know, let's instead Give, put a, replace Espinosa with somebody else. So yeah. Manfred, the only fair way to do it, it was fair to give the Red Sox a chance to say, actually, no, never mind. Um, we don't want to do this trade. But anything else more complicated, it it just didn't seem like something that, that was going to work.
0: That is going to end up being a really tough pill for Red Sox fans to swallow if he does end up with any sort of long-term injury, though.
1: Yeah, that's true, though. I mean, the thing about Espinoza, like, on the one hand, he's incredibly valuable, and you could argue you could, you know, you could use him in another trade. He could have gone in the sale trade, for example, instead of Kopech, and then he'd still have Copac just as one example. But, like, the number of elite 18-year-old pitching prospects who have panned out is not nearly as—the group is not nearly as big as you would think. Like, so many of those guys don't make it. So, you know, there's a chance that this— that it doesn't end up as costly you know it doesn't have to be a Jeff Bagwell for Larry Anderson sort of thing but it would certainly look a lot better if if Drew Pomerantz could be anywhere near what he was last year with San Diego instead of a guy who's dealing with elbow issues
0: yeah absolutely Um, so I wanted to get to the uh, the team competition that was held this morning Uh, I heard a little bit about that followed it on your Twitter account watched some of the videos that you put up um, so I wanted to hear about it. I know that Betts had a team and Pedroya had a team and they did some sort of a offensive players and uh, they did one set of drills and pitchers did another set of drills. And then it seems like they combined together, um, to do an obstacle course. And then at the end, the overall winner didn't have to make the road trip, um, to play the Yankees later in the week. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about that process and what you saw this
1: morning? Sure. So a couple of days ago, I had actually – I'd heard there were people looking for – somebody was looking for Bets a few days ago because they had a meeting in John Farrell's office and I my attention was a little bit peaked and then I kind of forgot about it. Um, but what they were doing at that moment was having a draft. There were three captains actually on each side. I said Betts and Pedroya on Twitter mostly for simplicity's sake. Um, It was – on one side, it was Pedroya and Price and Hanley Ramirez and on the other side, the captains were Betts and Rick Porcello and chris young um so those were the three captains on each side drafted teams and the idea was they drafted them evenly by position because whoever lost had to there's a night game in tampa against the yankees on tuesday and not only is that a long bus trip but it's the day before their only off day of the spring
0: Mm.
1: and whoever goes on that trip is getting back after midnight okay because it's a night game up there so that's just that's a rough that's a rough trip to have to do
0: yeah so stakes are high already
1: yes absolutely so the position players had two accuracy contests one was throwing from a shortstop and that was all the position players like catchers and jackie bradley's throwing and mitch Moreland's throwing from with his left hand from a shortstop things like that Um, then they had a hitting for accuracy competition which involves setting up a tee in shallow left field and then trying to hit certain spots in the green monster and then the pitchers had sort of pfp drills i wasn't close enough i didn't go out to the field they were at to see exactly what they were doing but it was some sort of throwing and fielding accuracy i think they had a bunting competition too um but those were the different things they just had guys on each side you know i think everybody ran through everybody in each team went through and apparently they were tied maybe one team won the pitchers one team won the hitters they were tied going to the obstacle course and then the obstacle course was set up by the trainers and there was so you had to maneuver a medicine ball around some obstacles without using your hands with a partner. So you basically, these two guys are basically just leaning into it with their chests. Mm-hmm. And able to hold this thing with their chests, and they had to run with it. Second thing is the trainers took a cooler, a big old like drink cooler, and then put a cone on top of that and then put a baseball on top of the cone. And the players had to carry the cooler without dropping the baseball up and back a certain distance, you know, 20 yards, I guess, probably. And then the last thing was pushing a sled. This was just kind of pure strength, but it was also coordination because you had to be pushing at the same level as the other guy. You know, it was was all about communication. Like it was a team building thing, and it was fun, and it was supposed to break up the monotony. But there was something to be said for kind of communicating and working with the other guy because you had to you had to work with the other guy to make this work. Um, So the sled, you you know, you push, and as long as you're pushing the same direction and the same speed, you're just going to push it up and then around a cone and back down again. So trying trying to follow this as best I could, it seemed like. Pedroia's team was ahead for a while um and then Brock Holt and Josh Rutledge did a particularly good job making up some ground I think Noah Ramirez and Edgar Olmos on Pedroia's team didn't do so great <laughs> and then Robbie Scott and Chandler Shepard um two relief pitchers seemed to really do well um at especially the cooler part that tripped a lot of people up because that's that balancing act was very difficult and they seem to do well with that so that's when they pulled ahead and then Mookie Betts' team by the end won by a fairly comfortable margin
0: wow um was this more much more exciting than a typical spring training game
1: oh so much more <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> what do you think attendance would have been like had they sold tickets to this thing
1: there were some people who could see it because a lot of times they let fans out on the backfield so there was they weren't too too close for there are a lot of fans who could see it. But yeah, it was I mean it was quite the event and it, it makes sense. Like it's a team building thing, but also like for the players, spring training gets boring. Like it's been seven weeks. They've been here since early February and they do the same thing and these games don't really matter. And you know, for the same reason that I think that's part of the, the appeal of the world baseball classic for some guys, especially the hitters, is like, hey look, I can play in meaningful games instead of playing in these endless games that don't count. You know, to do something like this, they just—they had a lot of fun with it. I think they really—they really got into it. This was not a guy, a bunch of guys who were too cool for it. They really, they got into it and had some fun, and it was fun to watch.
0: I know I have a lot of questions about this, but Brian, I'm assuming, or Joiner, I assume that you have a lot of questions as well. Um, do you want to hop in here and chat about
2: this? Uh, I don't have a lot of questions about this, but I, I will just say that uh, I've noticed. I don't know if there's been more coverage of these sort of. Uh, blow off steam exercises this year whether i'm just noticing them more um but you know i saw kenta might translator do a deadlift and the whole dodgers clubhouse is going crazy and then on twitter i saw there's something like oh someone uh, broke a brick on don mattingly in spring training and my brain thought well yeah he played in the 80s who knows what was going on in the Sprint. I it's like, oh no, 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 that just happened yesterday. Oh, okay, I see. Um, so I've really, en- all I have to say is that I've really enjoyed this. Uh, what I, at least to my eyes, has been uh, some more coverage of this stuff.
1: Yeah, there's there's been more coverage. The Red Sox, I don't know if they did it last year, they definitely did it a couple years ago to avoid the uh, bus ride to the other side of Florida. And I think, I think the you know, Farrell and these other guys are. These other coaches probably are just realizing, like, you've got to do something to break up the monotony. And I don't know that Farrell's going to have a brick broken on his chest, but I do think he likes this. Like, you know, there's a team, build, team building element and just a, like, guys have something to look forward to that's not the same old, same old, same old.
0: So I do have a few questions here. Um, first thing that comes to mind is, do you have any idea who were the first picks that each of these teams made?
1: I do not. They did not disclose the draft order. And I wonder they must have done it in some sort of way like they drafted all pitchers first or all position players first because you know the whole point was they had to have a whole both sides had to have a passable roster that they could send to Tampa. And actually I should add by the way, the cruel irony of this that I discovered asking about it afterwards as, you know, as a dutiful reporter, um I was told or I you know I saw and then was told to reinforce it that Scott and Shepard were the two kind of heroes of this thing that they won it and I Asked Chandler Shepard, so what are you going to do with your free Tuesday night now that you don't have to go to Tampa? And he said, actually, I have to go to Tampa because I was scheduled to pitch that day, and I looked at the schedule. I look, This is me talking now. I looked at the schedule, and also Robbie Scott is scheduled to pitch. So the two guys who were most instrumental in avoiding a trip to Tampa are both going to Tampa.
0: That is that is truly kind of kind of sad. I hope they can work out some other reward system for them. Maybe it will be would... a roster spot for Robbie Scott, right?
1: <laughs> it might be. It might be. <laughs> But yeah, they. I mean, with these pitchers, especially with the day off the next day, like there's not really flexibility with when they're pitching. They have to get their work in. So off to Tampa they go.
0: Um, follow-up question. Who had a shockingly bad performance in a particular event that stood out to you that you were like, wow, I can't believe he couldn't do that? Um, or someone who you were like, well, um, that was amazing, and I wasn't expecting that whatsoever.
1: I unfortunately I don't know if I have anybody like that because the obstacle course was the only part I watched really closely. Um, I'll be I was because I was transcribing stuff during the during hitters and I didn't really see the pitchers at all. So unfortunately, I don't have a great answer for like boy, this guy looked really terrible there. <laughs> um, I don't even know who did particularly well in the hitting. I figured I was just going to catch up on the score when the obstacle course happened. Um, yeah, I'm trying to remember if anyone really struggled with any of the other elements to a to a notable extent I don't think I really have anybody it was tough to kind of keep up with everything I guess the highlight of some of those two was that there weren't real clear rules about whether or not you could interfere with the other team so you kind of saw Pablo Sandoval and Chris Young who were on opposite teams getting in the faces of the guys who were competing on the other team like these courses were set up parallel to each other Mm -hmm. Um, but Sandoval and Young and Hanley Ramirez and some of these guys were um We're kind of going over there and yelling at the guys who were trying to go through the course trying to mess them up so that was entertaining too
0: well it sounds like a a whole lot of fun I definitely uh if I can make it down there I'm going to try and earmark this day because maybe it'll happen do you know if it was a similar time around this time period that it happened last year did you even get to see it last year
1: I didn't see it Tim saw it last time um it's I didn't know about it till this morning so it's hard to plan ahead for it. The only thing I would say is that it would normally happen before some unpleasant road trip. And okay. you I would normally expect that would be an East Coast trip, a trip across to Jupiter or Port St. Lucie or something. But maybe they didn't want to they had they had that trip pretty early in spring training. Um, maybe they didn't want to do it at that stage, save it for kind of the, I mean I would imagine they do it now because it's kind of the doldrums of the spring. Um, and this was there was sort of one last unpleasant trip left they've got a day game in Dunedin that's not a great trip that's a long bus ride but it's not like an absurdly long bus ride I think this night game against the Yankees was kind of the last unpleasant trip they have
2: hey Brian uh, if you had to compete against him not to go on one trip of the season which one would you be trying to avoid
1: oh man the most unpleasant Red Sox trip (sighs) Honestly, it's probably the first one of the season that I'm going to be going on, which is Detroit. Mm. There's just there's not much. I mean, you know, we've all kind of heard about Detroit. There's just not a lot going on in downtown Detroit, and it's tough to get to the airport to and like to and to and from downtown from the airport. Like Cleveland used to not be great, but Cleveland's kind of come back, and they've got a nice little area with some restaurants and things, which we all know because opening day last year we spent we all spent five days in Cleveland to cover two games because of the weather there. Um but that wasn't too bad. And most of the other places have their merits in a lot of ways. I guess Detroit would be the one that's you know, the ballpark's not the ballpark's fine, but it's not great. It's not a it's not a great place to cover a game. There are obviously a lot nicer ballparks. Um there are worse ballparks. You know, Oakland's obviously not a great place to cover a game, but by going to Oakland means you're going to the Bay Area and that's never bad. So I'd say if we had to if we had to do that it would be Detroit.
2: Okay, follow up question Who would win?
1: Well, it depends what the competition is, and that's the challenge with this is that this was a team competition. You couldn't win by yourself.
2: Okay, well, it's not a book report, so I think you this is a good uh, – you have a leg up on Tim who I know is constantly uh, reading something smarter than I understand.
1: Yes, I think he does the book reports for fun. <laughs>
0: Oh, man, that's awesome. Um, Detroit gets a, gets another dig. Um, they have a statue of RoboCop, don't they?
1: I haven't seen it. Where is it? And I probably will go there in two weeks.
0: I don't know. I could have just made that up, but for some reason I really think that they have a statue of RoboCop.
2: Brian. Have I you think heard? you might be conflating the statue of Rocky, uh, but I hope you're right.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's something I'm gonna have to figure out before I go to Detroit in two weeks.
0: Yeah, definitely. Get back to us on, on if if there is one, because I'd be very curious about that. Um, getting back to baseball though, I want to ask you about um the position battles that are going on because there are still a few battles um that seem to be, um seem to have a little juice at least. Um, catcher being one of them, second lefty out of the bullpen. And uh, then the battle of Hernandez versus Rutledge, which uh, got some juice today with a couple triples from Hernandez. So I wanted to get your opinion as to how those battles have kind of shaken out over the course of the spring and who you think the front runner is for each of those uh, positions.
1: So the problem with the roster is that I think Farrell keeps wanting to say like he he gets offended when people suggest that the roster is all set. But basically the roster is all set because – Swihart's the only catcher with options. Rutledge is a Rule 5 pick. Abad doesn't have options, and Robbie Scott does. Like, that's going to determine those battles to me, is that, you know, the other part is that Rutledge is a righty, and he thus complements Pablo Sandoval in a way Hernandez does not. Hernandez is more redundant with Brock Holt, whereas Rutledge is better complement, um, that's that's what's going to determine those. Who's Who the starting catcher is, to me, is really interesting. I think Sandy Leon will be the starting catcher on opening day. I don't know that he will be the starting catcher on April 15th. He hasn't hit at all. Um, Vasquez hasn't hit much more, um, but he at least has a track record in the minor leagues of hitting a little bit. Leon hadn't hit at all until that crazy year last year, or the crazy two months last year. So that, that'll that be one to watch even beyond opening day. But Swyhart has options. The other two don't. So Swyhart goes to the minors. Same with Hernandez and Rutledge. Hernandez goes to the minors, like as well as he's played. And I'm I'm more and more sold on Hernandez. And I think that if you know if Fedoray got hurt for a month, I really would be interested in seeing Marco Hernandez get a month's worth of playing time at second base, like instead of Brock Holt. But I don't think you can carry Hernandez on the roster instead of Rutledge. I mean, they picked Rutledge in the Rule Five to be exactly what he is, the last guy on the roster with some versatility who can spell Pablo Sandoval against lefties, and that's that's what he is. And then I think if there was a shot that a bod wasn't gonna make the roster, like they would have non-tendered him. Like once they tendered him a contract, yes, they can save them some money if they cut him before opening day, but like he hasn't you know, he's didn't look bad in the world baseball classic. He didn't look bad when he pitched with the Red Sox before. Like I think he'd have to look really bad for them to cut him and sort of deplete their bullpen depth. Much, you know, they'd much rather, you know, either Somebody gets hurt and they call up Robbie Scott or you know maybe they can trade away Abad if he looks good and Robbie Scott's or and Robbie Scott's pitching really well in Pawtucket. But at this point, I don't think you cut Fernando Abad to keep Robbie Scott because then, you know, then Robbie Scott gets hurt in two weeks and then you're kind of without both of them.
0: Hernandez has looked really, really good lately. I mean, this this spring he's been getting on base at a ridiculous clip and he had the two triples today. Um, Offense has looked really good. We know that he has a lot of flexibility. Is there any chance that down the road, he could be somebody that slides into that Brock Holt mold and you know, possibly Brock Holt. I don't know if they need to make a move for a starter or something like that in the middle of the season. I know that Brock Holt's not the most attractive trade chip because the type of teams that would trade for him are not um, typically the type of teams that would trade for him, if that makes any sense. So I, I don't know what the role is for Hernandez long term, but... Certainly seems like a bat that could be a really serviceable utility player.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't know what's going to happen. I agree with yeah all of that. That you know, it's he's a little redundant with Holtz. So if he's going to stick with the Red Sox, it's probably in place of Holtz. Maybe Hernandez gets traded. Maybe Holt gets traded. The one thing I'd caution with spring training. and This is one of the reasons that. You know, you always caution talking about spring training performance, he's hit a lot of fastballs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how many breaking balls he's seen. His triples today were on fastballs. Like he can really square up a fastball. And that's not to say he's not gonna see fastballs. Like obviously pitchers throw a lot of fastballs, but if he's vulnerable to breaking balls, that won't show up with what he's seen in spring training so far. That would really only show up in the season. So that'll be the thing to watch. You know, if he's in Pawtucket, that'll you know, he'll see breaking balls there, but that'll be the thing to watch as the season gets going
0: yeah absolutely um what about Vasquez I mean it seems like his arm strength is fully back uh today was especially impressive when he had that throw and he threw out the runner at second base um I believe he's done that at least one other time that I've seen this spring I don't know how many of those he has uh maybe you can speak to that but it seems like he is a different defensive player than what we saw last year
1: yeah, I think he's he's back to full health and sometimes they say that takes a year and that's part of why I think that he's got a real shot because there's that arm. He's also a better framer statistically than Sandy Leon. Um Leon was a below average framer last year. Vasquez was an above average framer in about the same amount of playing time. So there's a lot to offer there. I think I still think if Christian Vasquez hits a little bit this year, he's taking that job. And I don't know what is happening, but that's that's been my thing since early in spring training. I really think he's going to take that job at some point. You know, there's just there's so much to that defensive package. Um, and he does seem like he can hit just a little bit.
0: One of our stats here at Baseball Prospectus True Average, actually likes Christian Vasquez more than Sandy Leon from a hitting perspective this year. And it's not saying a whole lot because it doesn't like either of them very much. Um, but I thought that was kind of interesting, even considering what Leon did with the bat, that projection systems are still favoring Vasquez by just a little bit.
1: Well, what do you guys think of Leon? Like... I mean, you've seen his numbers. I mean, there's a reason for those projections because basically before last year, he didn't do anything with the bat, including in A last year. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden he's, you know, the, he's, I don't know, Mike Piazza. And then it went away again. Like, what do you guys make of Leon with the, with the bat?
0: Uh, Brian, you want to uh, join or you want to hop in?
2: Yeah, I want to believe. Uh, and part of the reason I want to believe is I I loved it when he was hitting because it brought some temporary clarity to this perpetually uh, muddled situation. So I don't really believe, and I, uh, I, I'm in solidly in the Christian Vasquez camp, but uh, I just want (laughs) Sandy Leon to hit because I think it's all found value if he does. Um, So, I don't expect it to happen. I also would not be incredibly surprised if he uh you know was better than projected, uh just uh based on the the bigger set of data that the projections are likely working off.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um I also agree I would like to see him hit, but I don't have a whole lot of confidence. I I think I'm right with the projection systems. Uh, I think Vasquez will be slightly better with the bat, and um, it is pretty well-known around here. I don't know if you knew this, Brian, but I am, like, the biggest supporter of Blake Swihart at the uh, BT I was just Boston
2: about team. to bring this up because I knew <laughs> that we were going to come here. My I, God.
0: I, I have to. I have no self-control when it comes to Blake Swihart. But I just hope that um, by maybe Memorial Day or something like that, what we're talking about is how well – Blake Swihart is doing defensively in Pawtucket and how he's tearing the cover off the ball and that both Vasquez and Leon really aren't hitting very much and uh, voila Blake Swihart
1: so yeah Blake Swihart's had it he's in a really interesting place um even Saturday in his game he caught Rick Porcello and Steven Wright and in the first inning he had a pretty bad wild pitch um, that's it's tough with catcher defense because it was called a wild pitch because it bounced, but, like, you've got to block that if you're Blake Swihart. And John Farrell even said that um, Sunday morning the day after that, you know, Swihart knows that's one that's got to be blocked. On the other hand, then he caught Stephen Wright for three innings, and he was noticeably better to the coaching staff than he has been in the past catching Stephen Wright, and obviously with the knuckleball, that's a challenge, but also that's part of the job of catching for the Red Sox is you know you're going to catch a knuckleballer, and that's it's a tough thing to do technically, and he's done that, He did that well the other day. So, you know, I honestly was not sure that Swihart would survive the off season, given that the Red Sox were so quick to pull the plug on him last year. I thought that Dave Dombrowski didn't think he could catch, and thus would trade him to a team that thought he could catch. And I really thought it was just too perfect when Mike Hazen and Amiel Sade, um, Amiel especially really liked Swihart. He was the guy that drafted him. He really liked him in that draft, like more than just the average guy that he drafted. I really thought Swihart was going to Arizona this winter. Um, You know, the Red Sox wanted to keep their catching depth, but also they seemed to like Swihart. So it's, you know, he needs reps. That's the thing is that he's caught as many innings approximately in his minor league career as Jason Veritek did in his minor league career. But Veritek also caught for four years at Georgia Tech on top of that. So Swihart needs reps. And that's what he should have gotten last year at Pawtucket, clearly. And this year, I think he he makes up for that. He goes to Pawtucket. And the fact that he has options makes that easier. Um, you know, we'll see where he is midway through the year. And you're right, if Sandy Leone's really awful, if he reverts back to what he was, then you know maybe Swihart's in the major leagues at some point during the season. But if he spends the whole year at Pawtucket getting those defensive reps, that's not a bad thing either.
0: Do you think that it's more likely that he does end up spending the entire year there? Or do you think it's more likely that they need the bat at some point And rather than make a trade because the farm system is depleted, they look to bring up his bat?
1: I mean, I certainly could see a catcher getting hurt and him coming up because that happens all the time. Man, if they like, I can't see them doing what they did last year, though, like asking him to play left field or third base or something like, yes, he's an athlete um, and he can play all those positions. But if they move him around again, if they take him off off um, catcher again to play somewhere else, I think that tells us like you, they can't keep doing that if they want him to catch at that point, he's done as a catcher with the red Sox. Like if, if he's going to start moving around, you know, if if he can't do it, if they don't think he's going to stick as a catcher and say, and they say like, Hey, let's see what he can do at third base. Like there's, you know, there's an argument to be made there, but like, you can't keep going back and forth with him.
2: I don't know if my heart could handle that. (laughs) Well, my, my take on this has always been that, uh, part of the, uh, I think he looks worse at catcher with the with the mere presence of Christian Vasquez because uh, he uh, just looks so much worse fielding uh, by comparison. And I've never gotten any sense that outside of from Jake and maybe some of the other BP Boston guys that there's been especially high hopes for his catching My working theory, and this is actually what I wanted to ask about Brian, is: Do you think Jake just like, and I'm serious about this, just likes Blake Swihart because he's handsome?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, most catchers don't hit. Like, there's a reason that that Christian Vasquez, you know, if he has like a 320 on base percentage and slugs 360 and plays that defense the Red Sox would take it like catchers don't hit and you know John Manuel at, at Baseball America I think always or Jim Callis maybe always talked about how Blake Swihart was kind of the Buster Posey starter kit and now Buster Posey's handsome too and Blake Swihart's handsome so maybe there's something to that as well but I don't know. I mean he's a switch hitter with athleticism who could you could see hitting 30 doubles right and if that's a I mean, if you can get him to stick behind the plate, there's a lot of value there. The, just the question is whether he can, and he just hasn't – I don't think he's had the reps to, to answer that question either way.
2: And let so me uh, here, just follow up. John, John Farrell John... was a pitcher and a pitching coach. Do you think it's possible he has less patience for this sort of stuff at a big league level um, than uh, some, than the most of the people who are not former pitchers and uh, pitching coaches? I know you'd have to speculate, but...
1: I could see that. Yeah, you're right. That's speculating, but that's a reasonable theory that, that that he doesn't want his pitchers undermined by a subpar defensive catcher. And I think there were times when there were Red Sox pitchers who preferred not to throw to Swihart because he didn't frame, because he didn't really... He didn't know how to think one pitch ahead of them. Like, he sort of had... They had to kind of plan their own games, you know, more than leon or vasquez who've done this for a long time and kind of understand sequencing and all that you know if if swyhart's catching if he is costing pitcher strikes and vasquez is stealing pitcher strikes like they're going to prefer to pitch to vasquez and i i think that you're right Farrell could sympathize with that perspective given where he came from
2: i also uh and this is conjecture on my part not sure not sure that he would be wrong in doing that i think that this is a uh a really interesting place to me. It's always been this way with Swihart um, and catching the specifically, where uh, you know they're the busiest player on the field. It's the it's the position that might have to be. Ma- they manage the pitching staff. The manager manages them. There's a lot going on there. I'm losing my train of thought. Jake, go.
0: <laughs> okay. Um. I will. I, I think we've pretty much well concluded the, the catcher situation. Is that
1: fair to say? Sure, unless you have anything you'd like to add about Blake Swihart's handsomeness.
0: Um, I uh, think that I, he is more handsome than Buster Posey, and uh, I I like the comps from Baseball America. So, uh, is he
1: more handsome than Xander Bogarts? Though I think that's the question.
0: Uh, I would uh, say no, hmm. but that's that's up for debate, and I'm sure Ben Carsley would say no as well.
2: Yeah, but Ben is that handsome, so that's, you know, Ben can just do whatever he wants.
0: That's right. He is like the young pope.
2: Um, so let's,
0: let's move to the outfield situation so I can get away from talking about the handsomeness of Red Sox players um, and talk about the depth this year uh, in outfield. Uh, the outfield currently projects to be the best um, by baseball prospectus war metric of any of the other. Um, outfields in baseball. Uh, we know how good that is, but um, behind them, uh, the fourth outfielder is Chris Young, and then um, Selsky has gotten some reps this spring. Um, there's Bryce Brents, Bogusevic, Junior Lake. Um, how do you see the depth behind these guys shaking out? Because after Chris Young, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot there, and I wonder you know, how does that compare to clubs in the past? I don't know whether or not this is a, a typical level of depth or is this something that's a little bit more shallow? Because it seems a little shallow to me, especially considering that the the later three guys that I mentioned are out of options.
1: I mean it it's yeah, it's shallow, but on the other hand, like they're not starting the the shell of Grady Sizemore either. Right. So it's I don't I mean the first four you're right. You can't get I don't think you can get better than those four guys. That includes Chris Young. Like Chris Young's a great fourth outfielder. He's the perfect fourth outfielder that can play good defense he can be passable in center field and good at the corners crushes lefties so there's a role there even hit righties pretty well last year like that's that's a really good role for him um i mean it's going to depend on how deep they have to go you're right it gets thin after that you know i don't they, you know, I was just, you know, you look at the 2013 team just for comparison's sake. Like Bradley was the guy, the next guy up after the four primary outfielders. Carp was a corner outfielder they could use sometimes. Bradley was the up and down guy. Um, that was basically it in terms of outfielders. That was basically what they used. And yeah, ideally you don't go to Brian Bogusevic necessarily, but on the other hand, like Darnell McDonald came out of nowhere in 2010 and was a useful player as a fourth outfielder for quite a while. So right. You know, there's you don't know what Selski is, you don't know what Bogosevic is. You're not gonna get a real this is where like, you know, if they hadn't if this was a small market team that kept its prospects instead of trading them, like Manuel Margot would be that guy. He would be now what Bradley was in twenty thirteen. It's that next guy in line who you can leave in Pawtucket for a while, but if you need him, you can bring him up and then like this is part of the consequence of trading the prospects is you're not gonna have that guy. Um you know, Bryce Brentz doesn't seem like that guy He'll probably – he'll have to be DFA at the end of spring training because he's out of options. Um, probably he'll clear waivers and go to Pawtucket, but yeah, he's not – he hasn't shown you very much. Um Selsky's interesting. They like his bat. Um, I don't know much more about him than that. They're trying to see if he can play a little third base, which tells you how much they like his bat because they really want to kind of shoehorn – give him a chance to shoehorn himself onto the roster. Maybe not out of, out of camp, but at some point, like to be the guy that if Rutledge gets hurt and they want another right-handed bat – behind Sandoval that maybe Selsky could be that guy he's going to need more reps at third base but he's you know if, if Chris Young were to get hurt yeah maybe he's the backup corner outfielder um, that comes up next yeah he's got options that I, it's not great Junior Lake got shipped out of big league camp pretty quickly so I don't I don't think there's much there you know Carlos Quentin is an interesting project who will probably be at triple-a who is in minor league camp so he's not at all in the mix but he's a guy who is healthy finally he thinks and wants to try things he basically sounds like Grady Sizemore all over again except they're not giving him a chance to to win the fan base's heart or to confuse things by playing well like he just he's going to go to the minor leagues and that's that so yeah it's it's not great but i I'm not that worried about it, especially because of the number of center fielders they have too. Like they're not going to be caught short at that position because basically anybody can move there. You know, if Jackie Bradley gets hurt, basically anybody else can move to that spot. So those guys can move around well. And they are, they are so talented all, you know, the three starters. You now you sort of, I don't know. I don't know the extent to which you guys are concerned at all about Andrew Benintendi. Like obviously he had a great year um, last year, should be the odds on favorite to win the rookie of the year, but we've saw Bogarts in twenty fourteen, we saw Bradley struggle, we saw Middlebrook struggle after an initial um introduction of the majors. That's the one that's the one thing for me is that I think we're all expecting that Benintendi can hit second in this lineup or third in this lineup, as John Farrell alluded to, um, and be productive. But then again, Michael Conforto, who was kind of the the easy comp for him last year, really struggled in his second season too. So I don't you know, maybe you guys are I don't know my level of concern yet, but I know I know there is a level of concern for me that Ben not going to be an instant superstar. Um, I th-
0: I'll hop in here. I, I think at first um, I'm not as concerned with him as I would be with really any other prospect hopping in there because of how advanced his approach is at the plate um, and because of how good that hit tool is. Uh, I just think it's even a little bit of a different situation than we saw with Bradley or we saw with Bogart's I think that he is just so far ahead of where they were at this particular time in his career that I think that he will be able to avoid some of those long-term slumps that you worry about from guys being thrust into an important position like this uh, early in the year. And he seems to be able to know um, when to be more passive at the plate and when to be aggressive. And I think one of the things that young hitters... Um, face, and I think Bogart's faced this to some degree, and you can definitely speak to this more uh, than I can Brian, uh, is when he was coming up, um, he would sometimes be a little bit too passive at the plate, and he would take a lot of pitches that maybe he should swing at, but I think one of the things that we've seen with Ben has been this calculated aggression at the plate that still um, shows his ability to be really selective too, so um, overall, he he presents more like a veteran than any rookie that I've probably seen uh in, in many years.
2: Yeah, uh Jake, just to follow up, I I think especially with Farrell talking about him batting third, and it seems like that's where he's going to hit. Um that this is a case uh maybe not as extreme, but like when Derek Jeter came up, he got a single digit number with the Yankees. That wasn't an accident. When Miguel Cabrera was batting third as a rookie in the World Series, that wasn't an accident. When Andrew Benintendi is named the potential third hitter on a lineup like this, it's not an accident. They have every opportunity to bat him lower in the lineup. Um, And sort of to answer your question, Brian, I'm not concerned about it simply because everyone seems on board with it. And they are all there. Um, and it goes to what uh, Jake is saying. Uh, so, no, I'm not. I do have a question for you, though. Do you, th- uh, Brian, do you think Chris Young will be able to hit righties as well as he did last year?
1: No, probably not. But if he hits them a little bit, you know, his role, I mean, it's perfect because the best outfielder is Mookie Betts, and you don't want him sitting down much at all. Um It would be nice to give Bradley some time down against lefties. There were times he struggled against lefties last year. Certainly Ben and you probably want to hide from some tough lefties at well as well. Um, and that's Young's job. like to be able to spell those guys if he plays twice a week, like once for each of them. plus he'll DH against some lefties also um, when Hamley Ramirez plays first base. At least to this point, Hanley Ramirez still actually hasn't played first base in a game this spring because he can't throw, so that's a little problematic. It's nice that DH is there for him; um, it's very convenient actually. But in a perfect world, against lefties, Moreland sits, Hanley plays first base, and Young is the DH. And I think if if he can tee off against a bunch of lefties, you know, assuming they play lefties, which you know you, you'll recall last April they didn't really face lefties, and Young got frustrated with that. He he performed pretty well as an everyday player last year, and I think he could do that if they needed him to again. Um, But if not, I think he's a a strong fourth outfielder type.
2: Speaking of Mitch Moreland, Mitch Moreland, I mean, uh, do you put any stock in? I mean, you're at spring training. It is easy to get carried away. I see the numbers. I like them. What what do you think of Mitch Moreland um, as a player? Basically, what do you think of Mitch Moreland as a player?
1: I was underwhelmed by the signing of I man. I understand it was mostly budget driven, and I think we all, you know, to say that Edwin Encarnacion is a better player is not breaking new ground here. You know, they like the defense obviously, and I think there will be more of an upgrade from Hanley Ramirez than. Then the Red Sox probably want to admit, given that Hanley Ramirez is still there. Like there were games that Ramirez cost them by with his inability to catch the ball at first base. Like there was a game at Toronto, I remember distinctly, where there was a throw from Shaw that Hanley Ramirez didn't handle and the winning run scored. And there was another one, I think, in Anaheim, where Ramirez threw it away to home plate and the winning run scored. Like he did better than he did in left field, but Moreland is still gonna be significantly better than him defensively. The swing seems to fit Fenway. He's hit the ball the other way a lot this spring once again pitchers aren't really game planning for him you know if he likes to hit the ball the other way is he going to get pitched inside 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 will he get breaking balls you know is he going to be able to kind of swing the bat the way he wants to swing the bat or a pitcher is going to counteract that like his on base percentage last year was what 298 you know that's not you can't do that as a first baseman so they need him to be better than that and maybe he will be you're right the early indications are good in spring training for what those are worth but you know, it's there's a reason he was available on a one-year contract too, even as the Gold Glove winner. So I'm, I don't know. I mean, he seems like he fits well in the clubhouse. Certainly, um, I think they like him a lot. I think they're encouraged by the swing. But I don't know. I I'm not optimistic that he's going to be an impact offensive player.
0: Yeah, it's it's been two seasons out of his last three. In fact, that Mitch Moreland has had. Uh, on base percentages that are under 300. And if you go all the way back to 2013, um, his OBP was 299 as well. So this isn't something that has been a one-off for him. This is kind of Mitch Moreland.
2: So, uh, yeah, this is him. So, Brian,
0: I want to talk to you about David Price because his story has been um, one that Red Sox fans have been following anxiously, Um, pretty much throughout the entire spring. And there was the scare with the elbow where he went to go see Dr. James Andrews and then got told that his elbow was unique and maybe not so unique as uh, others have found out since then. And then he gave a really bizarre interview with Stan Grossfeld of The Globe where he expressed some of his unhappiness in Boston or some of the things that have bothered him uh, throughout his time. So I want to ask you just generally where is his health right now? And I know you can't really perceive his happiness level, but what do you make of some of these um, comments and, and larger questions that are kind of surrounding David Price and uh, his time here in Boston?
1: Yeah. So the elbow, I mean, it's a concern. It's definitely a concern and he hasn't, he still has not advanced beyond playing light catch from 50 feet. So certainly he's a long way away from pitching in a game and, I mean, I think it's pretty clear there's some damage in the elbow. And, you know, he admitted later after that first day that he came back that he kind of shut it down as soon as the doctors told him that he didn't need surgery. And certainly, you know, it may be something he can pitch through. It may not be. I think there's an argument to be made that last season his command was the worst of his career. Like, he still didn't walk many guys but he acknowledged he was not able to hit spots the way he had in the past and the ball got to the middle of the plate too much that's why he gave up so many hits like that was the his point of emphasis this off season well one of the ways that you start to lose command is when you start to lose some strength in your elbow and your delivery and you know start to lose some you know you start to have a little damage there and you just you can't repeat your delivery exactly the same way that you did before and you know we remember this with John Lackey in 2011 is it doesn't take much you know, to maybe 2010 lackey was starting to deal with some damage in his elbow and then 2011 it was shreds and that's why he was so terrible that year but you know even 2010 was kind of uncharacteristic for him and maybe he was starting so I could see last year having been a reflection of a little bit of damage there for David price and obviously he was quite good for long stretches but he still was never quite as pinpoint as he'd been earlier and he's a guy with a lot of innings on his arm i don't know i mean I, I agree the orthopedic surgeon that I talked to just to talk to somebody who is more knowledgeable about this than I do said you don't just willy-nilly do surgery. You don't say like, hey, you're going to need surgery eventually, so let's do surgery now because we've seen guys that it just doesn't come back for them. You've seen quite a few pitchers. Like it's not an automatic thing. So they want – basically the goal is if if he is pitching with a little bit of damage in his elbow, you know, maybe it's a Felix Hernandez thing where it's just gradually going downhill and you've still got – 85 or 90 percent of what david price was and you you go with that instead of the risk that you completely ruined david price forever you know that said i don't i mean there's reasons to be pessimistic about his trajectory um certainly his health and you're right the the comments in that interview and sort of his sentiment all along has been of a guy who as much as he talked about the fact that he was ready for boston and he liked pitching in boston as a visitor and all of that like he didn't seem all that happy in Boston last year. It seemed like, I mean, it, you're right. It was a little bit bizarre. The like, why didn't the guys in the media ask about my charity? Like that that was a, a focal point for him. The fact that he keeps tweeting about the playoff thing, you know, he's decided he's going to say it. You know, the like, what is it? I, now I'm going to bring up the movie Pitch Perfect. But isn't there a scene in the movie Pitch Perfect where, who is it? Fat Amy says like, I call myself Fat Amy, so no one else can call me that. Like,
0: right, right. he's it, sort of preempting the criticisms.
1: Right. So he's – so I don't know what that says about his level of personal security about that, that he like – he keeps going to the criticisms even before other people do. Like that doesn't – you know, not to psychoanalyze the guy, but that doesn't seem like a great thing for him to be fixated on. And part of the challenge is with his playoff record kind of hanging over his head, like this is not the sort of thing he can fix until October. He could go 33 and 0 and the playoffs could start and everyone would say, okay, fine, now do it in the playoffs, and it wouldn't have changed a thing. So I don't know. I mean, first they need him to be on the mound. I'm not convinced he's gonna be on the mound. And then they need him to pitch better than he did last year, or at least at least as well as he did last year. And you know, he's David Price. He's been one of the best pitchers in the game for a long time, so there's plenty of reason to believe he could, and there have been a lot of guys, you know, Josh Beckett is an easy one, Rick Porcello is another recent one that were not great their first year in Boston. Then were great their second year in Boston. And Price was better last year than either Beckett or Porcello was were in their first season in Boston. So there's reason to there's there's plenty of scenarios in which he's really good this year. But you know the fact that the elbow's hurting him and he's coming along so slowly is also reason to be pretty cautious about him as well.
0: Um, how many innings do you think he actually ends up getting this season?
1: Jeez, I don't know. I mean, like, zero is not out of the question still. I guess I should make that pretty clear, that just because he didn't need surgery then, you know, we saw that with Carson Smith, we saw it with Brandon Workman, like, zero is still not not eliminated from this conversation. Otherwise, jeez, I don't know. I mean, if he misses, I think the best case scenario for him is that, you know, now he, he comes along slowly and he's ready, like, March or May 10th, and he kind of does the Eduardo Rodriguez thing from last year, except he's better from the get-go than Eduardo Rodriguez because Rodriguez seemed really fixated on his knee health and not able to deal with that. And I think Price has a better chance to deal with that mentally than Rodriguez just being a veteran, just kind of understanding his body a little bit better. You know, that gives him, I don't know, 25 starts. So 150 innings, I think, is a a an optimistically an optimistic projection, I would say.
0: That that would not be great still, but I guess at this point, like, that's a pretty good outcome for um, the amount of worry that I think most Red Sox fans had when we got the initial news about his elbow pain.
1: I mean, the nightmare scenario is that he pitches most of this year or a bulk of this year and then really injures his elbow either late in this season or it becomes the lackey thing where he needs surgery after this season Mm -hmm. and then doesn't pitch next season and then hey look it's time for his opt-out and at the worst possible time if you didn't want to be have david price on the books for four more years at 30 more million per if you were sort of counting on him opting out after these three years because everyone opts out you know and if he pitches if he if he did for the next two years, what he did last year or slightly better, like I think the odds are 99% that he opts out. Now all of a sudden he's coming off Tommy John surgery. He's not going to opt out. Now you're locked into David Price in the way the Yankees were locked into CC Sabathia.
0: That's something that Brian Joyner and I have been talking about kind of a lot on Twitter is whether or not he's likely to opt out. And I think that he is unhappy enough that there's a pretty high likelihood he opts out in either case.
2: And I, I think- yeah, I disagree. I, I think that if things are going bad for him, he's making, you know, a lot of money, uh, whether he opts out or not. So I think that if things are going bad for him, he won't uh, bother. And I, just uh, for all the disasters we're talking about, uh, I hadn't even thought about Lackey uh, as a comp, and that's actually. The first one that's actually made me feel good, um, because Lackey actually came back and did well, um, whereas I've been more thinking about the lefty trio of 30 plus guys, uh, Zito, Sabathia, and Lester. Um, but uh, the Lackey, the Lackey comp, actually makes me a little bit happy. But Brian, what do you think about the opt out?
1: I think I'm I'm more with Joyner. I think that I think he opts out. I mean, he opts out if he's going to get more money on the free market. If he's going to get more than what is it? He'd base more than four and one twenty approximately. And I think if he's David Price and he's pitching well, you know, as Zach as Zach Greinke found when he opted out of his Dodgers contract, like there's still a lot of money out there. And even though it's going to be in an off season where there's going to be a ton of really good free agents, I think teams are going to save up for that and somebody's going to give him the money. But if he's coming off of surgery or he's coming off of underperformance and he's not going to get that, you know, maybe if it's even, if he hates Boston, he opts out if it's close at all. But like one example in terms of guys who are miserable potentially is an Alan Craig who basically has no shot to be with the Red Sox whatsoever because the luxury tax, he's just buried. And obviously last year he didn't play very much, but he could have opted out of his contract when he was. removed from the 40 man for the second time like that's an option he has when you're outrighted for a second time you can opt to become a free agent which for craig meant opting out of his future contract which the red sox would have obviously loved for him to have done but also you know that would have given given craig a chance to go to an organization where he had a better shot to get some playing time maybe even get back to the major leagues and he didn't do it because it would have meant leaving $9 million on the table last year and $11 million on the table this year, plus his buyout. So he couldn't, you know, there's just, they would have been crazy too. And, you know, Price, yeah, even an injured Price would get some kind of contract if he opted out, you know, coming off of surgery, for example, next year. But I think he's got to be pretty confident that he's getting at least a hundred million dollars in free agency and probably more than that um, to opt out after next season.
2: And for what it's worth, Jake, I uh, generally think think that Price – the same animating factors that make him furious right now and sort of maybe erratic uh, in a public persona are the same ones that drove him to be good here. I I, I think that the line in cases like this is so thin between being loved and hated that I think that – Uh, he's angry that he can't uh, do what he wants to do for the Red Sox. So while it is nonetheless, I mean, I'm not letting uh, the potential impact of being in a bigger and uh, maybe not singularly, but uh, close to singularly neurotic market uh, play on him. I, I think that it, the, the reason – I've seen other players who, like, say, Carl Crawford, who just – that was a different case. That seemed just bad from the get-go. I think that Price is pissed off that he can't play for the same reason that we're pissed off that he can't play. And if he can – I don't get the sense that he is necessarily miserable in Boston that is that is what i'm trying to say
0: yeah i i think that there is definitely that possibility out there i don't know if uh um brian you want to weigh in on on that possibility before we close out things here
1: yeah i think that's fair and i think i mean the comments in that interview with stan grossfeld like he wanted to be cared about and not just be a pitcher like guys earn that in boston i don't know if that's something that he knows deep down but doesn't want to admit or if he's got to kind of learn like he saw the David Ortiz love fest last year and that's a guy that fans in Boston care about but like David Ortiz earned that over 15 years and he earned it in 2004 like maybe Price doesn't realize quite that like nobody's like David Ortiz and you know fans really like Dustin Pedroia but fans don't even know Dustin Pedroia personally that well they just love him because the way he plays and I think yeah Joyner's right that Price wants to pitch in a way that will earn him that love and he hasn't done it. And maybe when he does it that, you know, the, the feelings will be mutual then.
0: Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope he does do it and I hope he does earn that from the fans and can, can start focusing more on the, on the, on the field stuff than, uh, the noise that's, that's coming out around it. And hopefully he ends up healthy, at least for those 150 innings or so that we think he can be, uh, this season. Cause we, we need him now more than ever. That's for sure. Um, But with that, I want to uh, just thank you for joining us today, Brian. It has been uh, fantastic, as usual, to get some of your insights on spring training. Um, You can find Brian uh, on Twitter at at BrianMacP. You can find Brian Joyner on Twitter at at BrianJoyner. And you can find myself at at DebJake. Please go on to uh, iTunes and rate and review us. We are also on Stitcher, where you can listen to us there and rate and review us. And... um, We will be with you next time. So, Brian, thanks so much.